the people were commanded to take off their ornaments. What in the world does that mean? They had ornaments worshiping other gods. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And uh, this is a very interesting time in God's law. And as we study this, we're gonna be looking at Exodus chapter 33. It's gonna be fascinating in just three minutes. But Corey is here with Ryan. Corey, what are you studying? Okay, I'm going to be taking a look at the tent tabernacle and how the Israelites camped around it and what that would have meant for them culturally. Ryan? Is God slow to anger, as passages like Exodus 34, 6 says? Or is his wrath quickly kindled, as Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 says? Well, this is the question that I'm going to be dealing with on today's program. All right, very good. Janice? In the cleft of the rock. All right, that's coming up. Remember, ask for the Bible guide. If you don't have one, we'll tell you how to get one in just a few moments. Let's open our Bible and learn what God said. Exodus 33, 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 7. Exodus chapter 33, chapter 34, chapter 35, and chapter 36. That's what we read today. It is really, really something as we focus on this. And the Hebrew word for holiness is kodash, which means separatedness or set apart. That's Strong's Hebrew lexicon, H6944. It is also a root word for sanctify and saint. This meaning seems simple enough, yet it's complex in describing a holy God. Set apart in what way, you might ask? God's holiness is defined by his perfection. In biblical history, we read about some ancient kings who honed in on this idea, and they thought themselves to be great, majestic, and holy, and they set apart from the common folk among things. Therefore, any law that they chose to set in place, this law was unchangeable. 
it was as good as done because it was holy. But in our world of imperfect people, that can never be the case. Never. Only God makes us holy. In Exodus 33, Moses attempts to separate himself from the people who were consistently unholy. Rather than a tabernacle intended as the dwelling place for the Lord among his people, Moses set up a tent of meeting outside the camp of the Israelites. Now, anyone wanting to consult the Lord would go there. This is absolutely stunning, and it's absolutely fascinating, too. Now, if you have your Bible guide, turn to today's passage. It's important. This is what the Bible guide looks like. If you did not receive yours, call us or write to us, or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and click on it. It will take you to a donate page. Thank you for your donations. We very much appreciate them, and they keep us alive here. And then it'll take you to a page where you can download it, just like we printed it. Very, very good. And today, we're going to talk about God's holiness. Exodus 33, 1 to 7. Very interesting. Father, I pray today that you would help us. A lot of people are called holy men. But Lord, we understand that only you are holy. And only the Holy Spirit is holy. <laughs> so help us, Father, in Jesus' name, to hear your word and to understand what you're saying today. And as we put this in context of today, thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. And we all said together, make it so, or amen. Let's look at the scripture because this gets interesting. Exodus 33, verse 1. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, he mentions all three there, to your descendants I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is amazing. God told the people that they were stubborn and rebellious. Beloved, we need to keep this truth front and center to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. What has Jesus Christ done for you and me? We're stubborn people. We're stiff-necked people. We don't like to be told what to do. We're going to do what we want to do. But hold on a minute. Jesus Christ died for our sins, paid the cost of our sins, and made a way for us to accept him and receive the gift of eternal life. That is so important to remember. We need to keep that in mind. And God spoke this to Israel at that time. God also spoke something else in Exodus 33. He says, verse 4, And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments 
that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. I want to tell you that's serious. The people were commanded to take off their ornaments. A big part of repentance is to recognize we are unholy people. Bottom line, we're unholy and we need forgiveness of sin. We're sinners. You say, well, Rod, you know, I haven't done anything bad. Well, we are all sinners. Jesus said, if you thought it, you've done it. What have you thought of? You've done it. Keep in mind that we are stiff-necked people and we are unholy. And we ask the Lord to come into our lives and to help us. And he does that. The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, comes into our, our bodies and helps us in the name of Jesus Christ. All right, this gets interesting. Now we go to the last verse. Now pay attention to this because this is important. Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. Outside the tent, away from the people. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. You're kidding me. You see, to meet with God, the people had to go outside the camp to the tent of meeting. This is God's people here. When we come to the God, we should come in sincere honesty, body, soul, and spirit. Beloved, when I came to know Jesus Christ, I realized two things. Thing number one, I didn't know how to talk to God. I mean, I said, Lord, I cried. I don't know what to say. I, I don't want to talk to you. Two, I recognized I'm a, I am, I mean, as sinner as they can be sinned. I'm lacking in every way. And so we need to understand that. We come to God and we say, Lord, I need you. Because if I don't have you, I'm not going to make it. And I prayed with him and I said, Lord, I'm a pastor's son and I don't know how to talk to you. I've heard some of the best sermons ever preached and I don't know how to speak to you. Help me. And you know what happened? God's Holy Spirit came down. And in that moment, the divine touch of God sealed me and helped me. And suddenly I was born again. I sensed the power of the Holy Spirit. I sensed the amazingness of God inside of my soul. I began to weep, just like a child. I was alone in the living room. My mother walked by and saw me, and she just kept going because she knew that God was dealing with me. And when God dealt with me that day, everything changed in my life. Every single thing. If you want change in your life, you don't do the changes. You come to God, give your life to Jesus Christ, invite him into your heart, and he will make the changes for you. Seek his face and you will find him.
So here in Exodus and even further, you know, when we're looking at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there's a lot of details and they're very far removed from us, from our culture. It can be difficult for us to understand. It can feel really tedious, but the details that are in there are actually really helpful. And my aim today is to prove that to you when it comes to the tent tabernacle. We're going to be looking at uh, the, the form of the tabernacle and the form of the camp of Israel as described in Numbers uh, and, and see what that culturally would have been saying to Israel. Take a look. The Bible meticulously describes the construction of the Israelites' tent tabernacle twice in Exodus. Later in Numbers, the Bible explains that Israel was required to camp in a certain way around the tabernacle, in a rectangular fashion and oriented east to west. While the average Bible reader may struggle with the monotony of the descriptions, these details have not only helped to explain the theological underpinnings of Israel, but have also redeemed the tent tabernacle from skeptical scholarship of the 19th century that believed it to be imagined by a post-exile priest, in reality just a derivative of the temple to retroactively explain the worship system of Israel and justify the importance of an Israelite priesthood. But this theory has serious flaws. The tabernacle is only superficially related to the temple and does not appear to be derivative. And the tabernacle and its camp are very closely related to religious and military tents from the 3rd and 2nd millennia BC. A priest inventing the account in the Persian period would have reflected religious structures from their time. So what tent structures closely resemble the Israelite tabernacle? The research of several scholars has been instrumental in revealing the very ancient comparatives to the tabernacle that bring us decisively to Egypt. Portable tents were used for religious and secular purposes as early as Egypt's first dynasty. They served as places to conduct religious ceremonies associated with mummification, as demonstrated in tomb paintings and as evidenced by fragments of remaining poles and frames. The secular use of portable tent structures at this time were mainly for outdoor lounging, attested to by the gold-covered wooden rods and joints to a queen's pavilion discovered in her tomb. Closer to the time of the biblical tabernacle is the New Kingdom of Egypt, when the use of tent structures had proven valuable in warfare. An amazing parallel to the tabernacle of God can be seen in the war camp of Ramesses the Great. Surviving illustrations show a rectangular camp oriented east to west with Ramesses' tent near the center. The tent is divided into a reception area and a throne room, remarkably similar to the layout of the tabernacle with its reception area and the Holy of Holies that housed the ark with its mercy seat. The last known examples of Egyptian tents in this form and used for this purpose come from the 12th century BC, the biblical time of the judges. The author of the tabernacle accounts accurately describes a tent and camp of Israel that fits into a very ancient Egyptian context. Moreover, the Bible describes that Israel left Egypt prepared for war. Is it any wonder then that they would be arranged in a way that was familiar to them while installing God as their king and fierce leader? Again, I think this is amazing. This is another example of God using familiar cultural elements to communicate who he was to Israel. Uh, 
he was their new king. Uh, you know, he had just redeemed them out of slavery. He had rescued them. In fact, this is what they would call him for generations in Israel and how he would identify himself through the prophets. I am the God who saved you, who, who saved you from slavery, who brought you out of Egypt. I am that God. And so God becomes their rescuing king. Moses, their leader, isn't even their king. He's just their intercessor. He's their go-between, between God, their actual king, and themselves. So I, I, I find it amazing how God is willing to use our culture. He's willing to use our imperfect cultures in order to speak to us and communicate truths to us that otherwise we may not understand or we may have a very difficult time understanding. And I think that it's important to remember in some of the translations of the new, uh, the new translation of the Bible talk about, and they, they refer to God as the Lord of armies. Uh, through the whole time uh, in the Old Testament. And it's very interesting because God is not just a peaceful God like Jesus Christ, but when he comes back in Revelation 19, he is somebody who rules mm -hmm. with a rod of iron. Mm -hmm. uh, and he brings judgment he, as, it, it, as a creator and as a absolutely. king. He also is a, a, a judge of morality. Absolutely. He just is. Very, very interesting. Okay, Ryan. All right, well, today I'm dealing with a question related to God's anger because Psalm 2 verse 12 states, that God's wrath is quickly kindled. But when we compare that to Exodus 34, 6 and Numbers 14, 18, it says that God is slow to anger. Now, at first, this might seem confusing. How can God both be slow to anger and his wrath be quickly kindled? Is God's wrath somehow different than his anger? Well, let's see if we can figure this out. Although the Bible consistently portrays God as long-suffering and slow to anger, it seems that Psalm 2.12 brings this into serious question, as it says that the wrath of God is quickly kindled. As the English Standard Version puts it, Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. When dealing with apparent difficulties in the Bible, it's always wise to consult other major Bible translations to see how they render the same passage. In this case, when we compare the ESV with other translations, this verse comes across somewhat differently. For example, rather than God's wrath being quickly kindled as in the ESV, the King James Version says that God's wrath is kindled but a little. In the same way, the New International Version, like the ESV, says that God's wrath can flare up in a moment. But Young's literal translation says that God's wrath burneth but a little. Though these translations are using very similar words, they are applying them differently, giving two vastly different meanings. Putting it into plain English, the ESV and NIV seem to portray God's patience as small, while the KJV and Young's literal translation portray God's wrath as small. The question is, which interpretation is correct? Actually, there is a third way these words could be put together. It may be translated as God's wrath is kindled in a little time. Notice that this translation says nothing of the nature of God's wrath, only that it will happen in a short time. So then, which of the three interpretations is correct? Is God's wrath quickly kindled, kindled but a little, or is it kindled in a little time? From the context of Psalm 2, it is very clear that the ESV and NIV's apparent portrayal of God as quick-tempered is not supported. For example, this psalm is all about Jesus Christ's messianic earthly reign, which is still in the future. This means that God's wrath spoken of in this psalm against the unrepentant has yet to be unleashed. 
So rather than God's wrath being quickly kindled, he has been and continues to be extremely long-suffering regarding this judgment, allowing time for repentance. Also, this long grace period is consistent with how God dealt with rebellions in the past, such as the global flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Time and time again, the Lord waited patiently for people to repent, but when they refused, he had no choice but to pass judgment. Also consider the fact that Psalm 2 itself was written as a warning to those who would oppose Christ. This is a great mercy in itself. God, like he has always done in times past, is issuing forewarning long before he takes action. In light of this, it seems best to understand the Hebrew of Psalm 2.12 to mean that God's wrath is kindled but a little, or perhaps kindled in a little time. Since both of these interpretations say nothing of God's patience, there is absolutely no contradiction. God is long-suffering, and no biblical passage says otherwise. So to resolve this apparent contradiction, we looked at other major translations of the Bible to see how Psalm 2.12 was being translated in those versions, which was somewhat different. And based on the context of Psalm 2, we were able to determine that the quickness or shortness spoken of isn't referring to a quick temper, but rather to God's wrath being small or his wrath being unleashed in a little bit of time. So God is slow to anger and no biblical passage says otherwise. Yeah, it's very interesting. God is slow to anger compared to our reaction and our reactions are sin, are based on sin uh, because we, we are not holy. Mm -hmm. But God's anger is holy. It is, is absolutely, yeah. Again, this is a stunning revelation and we need to keep this in mind as we think this through in the New Testament times. Very good. Janice? This is a really interesting portion. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses meets with the Lord and there's a promise of God's presence. And, and Moses asks, please show me your glory. And there's this interesting dialogue that God has with Moses. And, and he says here, but God said to him, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. Isn't that interesting? You shall stand on the rock. And we know that Jesus uh, in um, Luke chapter 6 talks about building your life on the rock, which is him. And it goes on to say here, So it shall be while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Interesting. Verse 22, so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And he has Moses standing on a rock. So reminded me of the old hymn rod of um, He Hideth My Soul by Fanny Crosby. And I'm going to try. I always worry about hitting the right key and going too high or too low. But you know what? It's the words, isn't it? and it comes from our hearts. So if you know, you join with me at home. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. 
Where rivers of pleasure I see. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. And he covers me there with his hand. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and he covers me there with his hand let him cover you today in the cleft of the rock Stand firm on the foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Remember that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 3.30 to 4.30 Eastern Time, we hold a live prayer meeting on Facebook, YouTube, and Bible Discovery TV. It's also recorded so you can watch at another time. And I want to encourage you to watch at another time if you can't make it at that time. That's 3.30 to 4.30 Eastern Time. Now today, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your presence in my life. Help me to be more like you. In Jesus' name.